Welcome, brothers and sisters, to this right here, the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Yes, it's so close to Christmas, only a mere week away, and here I am, still cranking out episodes like a dope pusher in Hong Kong. Now, you know the drill. We cover violent movies that were specifically not video nasties, but are similar nonetheless, having similar genres or plots, the same actors or crew members, or even just plain equally nauseating violent bits. So after last week's torture theme, we're taking a very different direction this week, covering a genre that exploded into popularity during the hip era of the 70s, blaxploitation. Two examples of this genre I'll be covering for your listening pleasure. Jack Hill's 1973 movie, Coffee, and the Kung Fu 1974 punch-up, TNT Jackson, by Sirio H. Santiago. So before we get onto the two entries themselves, let's talk a little bit about exploitation in general. So spawning, really, from 1971's Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and also Shaft, released this later the same year, Black exploitation films usually depict a black character, male or female, rising up from the oppression of white characters, often described as the man, and establishing themselves as having power. Frequently set in poor urban neighbourhoods, themes of drug use, violence and sex are not uncommon, intending to be shocking and to elicit a strong reaction from its audience, forcing them to consider the statements by the film's primarily black cast as poignant. So while sometimes mixing with other genres, black exploitation constantly features stereotypes of black people using their own distinctive terminology, like jive, cracker, honky, and dynamite, and hyperbolic depictions of both pimps and prostitutes. Another very common recurring feature is the soundtrack, which frequently showcases intense soul jazz, 70s funky beats, and wah-wah guitars. Now, in a break from traditional action or vigilante films, black characters are the main focus here and were portrayed as more than just sidekicks or background cutouts. And the effect that this had on future filmmaking was rather powerful. Apart from empowering black audiences, it also forced race relations to change in the wake of the era, though this did come with a price. The, gene, the genre was frequently criticised for perpetuating white stereotypes about black people, as well as exploiting the very people that the genre is trying to vindicate. Much later examples of film, such as the remake of Shaft, or Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, are purposeful love letters to the genre, while you have some parodies like Black Dynamite that look at the era with a bit more of a tongue-in-cheek. So with that in mind, let's go into the first film of our pair, Coffee. Coffee is a color. Coffee is a color. 
A nurse, known only as Coffee, lures a drug dealer and his pusher to their apartment and murders them, citing that her younger sister has a ruined life due to being hooked on dope that the pair had supplied. After visiting her sister, Lubelle, in a juvenile rehabilitation centre, Coffee explains to her friend police officer Carter that she believes drug dealers should be killed because her family has been plagued with problems due to drugs. She meets her boyfriend, politician Howard Brunswick, at a nightclub and finds that he's been promoted to Congress. Feeling guilty about the murder she's perpetrated, she visits her friend Carter only for him to tell her of his fellow officer's involvement in the drug rings and his refusal to participate. Shortly after, armed men break into the apartment and beat Carter senselessly, disabling him. Questioning an old acquaintance about the main players, Vitroni and King George, Coffee makes contact with King George himself and offers her services as a prostitute to get her foot in the door. After proving herself, she manages to meet Vitroni, his bodyguard Omar, and many of the men involved in the drug ring at a party, as well as strategically stealing George's supply and replacing it with sugar. She then goes back to the party to beat up Meg, one of George's girls who's purposefully spilled drinks on her, causing a brawling catfight in the process. Due to her feistiness, Vitroni takes an interest in her and hires her for the night, leading Coffee to attempt to kill him. She's caught, however, by Omar, who beats her up, causing her to blame George, who's then killed by Vitroni's men, who drag him to death using his car. Coffee, now incarcerated in Vitroni's shed, schemes to find a way out and obtains a broken hair grip, but she's soon called into the house to see a friend, and it turns out to be her boyfriend Brunswick, who's involved in the drug wing as well, but he dismisses her as just a prostitute and says that she can be killed. Omar and some of the corrupt cops take her away, doping her and planning to execute her, but thankfully it's George's stash and turns out to be merely sugar, allowing Coffee to feign a high. She seduces Omar before stabbing him in the neck with the sharpened hair grip, and she flees the scene, disposing of the two corrupt cops on the way. Stealing a car, she ploughs into Vittori's home and brutally dispatches of the drug ring with a shotgun. She then heads to Brunswick's house on the beach, holding him at gunpoint. He tries to sweet-talk his way out of his actions until a white girl descends the stairs. Coffee shoots Howard dead and leaves the house finally vindicated. Now, uh, one more thing. Where does he keep his supply? His su- hey. What are you trying, to get me killed? Come on, Priscilla. Where does he keep it? You know, don't you? You lived with him. You get out of here. Right now! Go on. Get out of here. Get out! So you want to play with knives, huh? Well, you picked the wrong player. No. No, please, look, I didn't mean nothing. Please! Oh, no! No, I'm going to give you another slice to match the one you got from that dog pushing pin. Unless you tell me where he keeps the stuff. No, please, he'll kill me. Oh, all right, all right. He's got a fireplace. It's in a box under the ashes. Harriet! Harriet! What the hell is going on here? She busted in here trying to make me. Get her out of here. Come on, dear.
I'd go wait for half an hour for you to turn a trick. When I come back, I find you bawling some nigger, bitch. You white crap. Starring probably the queen of all black exploitation films, Coffee was released in 1973 shortly after the genre had exploded into popularity. Directed by Jack Hill, the film concerns a nurse who's angered by drug problems in her family, embarking on a personal vigilante mission against those who perpetuating the town a problem in her own town. The film came about from Larry Gordon, who was the head of production in American International Pictures, and he'd lost the rights to the film Cleopatra Jones, which went to Warner Brothers. Wanting to beat the competition, Gordon approached Jack Hill to make a movie about an African-American woman who takes revenge, in order to get a head start on Cleopatra Jones. Hill immediately wanted Pam Greer for the starring role, whom he'd worked with on The Big Dollhouse and The Big Bird Gauge. The film's script was rustled up rather quickly, and the filming was completed in just 18 days. Interestingly, the home where Vitroni lives was actually the home of Roy Rogers, while the idea of coffee hiding weapons in her big afro was suggested by Greer herself. Funnily enough, the film actually ended up grossing more than Cleopatra Jones, helped majorly by the fact that coffee was lower in budget, and it also established Pam Greer as something of a stalwart in the exploitation genre. Apart from symbolising black power, Greer's coffee character was also a major boost for female empowerment, as she was not only a working woman with a very responsible job, but she was tough, passionate, altruistic and resourceful, and certainly not afraid to use her sexuality to destroy her oppressors. The plot, while nothing special for black exploitation, was heavily anti-drug in its message, something, something that would have been rather unpopular for that era. It may have been that the film was trying to reject the notion that all African Americans are complicit in criminal drug dealing, though not enough, of course, to resist showing King George's character as a massively over-the-top pimp. Greer has since stated that her portrayal of Coffee, and by the same token the later Foxy Brown, were based on her mother who was a nurse, her aunt, and other female members of her family. She explains that she grew up in an era where women were beginning to vocalise their dislike of what had become their lives, taking care of family and lacking education and freedom all over Europe and America. Especially in the wake of brutality like the embargo or the Vietnam War, women would often find their husbands dead or permanently disabled, leaving it to them to take responsibility and to struggle to keep their livelihoods and their homes. Other influences came from her grandfather, who she described as the first feminist in her life who taught her how to hunt, fish and shoot, because he believed women could, and should, be self-sufficient. Something that was echoed by Greer's own study of philosophy, in which Plato declared that women ought to be leaders, much to the chagrin of his protégé, Aristotle. Pam Greer, apart from becoming an icon of the genre, starring in lots of other examples like Foxy Brown, which became a Section 3 video nasty, Sheba Baby, White Mama Black Mama, Friday Foster, etc., but she was also in a few women in prison, come sexploitation type pictures, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Women in Cages, The Big Bird Cage, The Big Doll House... Now, on some of these earlier films, Greer had actually contracted a tropical disease, and she nearly died as a result, losing her hair and eyesight for almost an entire month. Later in the 80s, she was also diagnosed with cancer, and given just 18 months to live. But being the tough, formidable woman that she is, 
She has survived and has since gone on to cult status, appearing in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Escape from L.A., Tarantino's Ode to the Genre, Jackie Brown, Ghosts of Mars, and even the TV show Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Booker Bradshaw, who played Howard Brunswick, had made some small appearances in Star Trek, as well as writing some episodes for The Rock of the Files and Columbo. Now, King George, the hilarious-looking pimp, was played by Robert Duquee, who's more recognisable for his roles as Sergeant Warren Reed from the three Robocop films. Another recognisable actor in the proceedings is Sid Haig, who's already co-starred with Greer at this point in The Big Dollhouse, The Birdcage and Black Mama, White Mama, and also the sequel to Coffee, Foxy Brown. He's now more known for portraying the disturbing Captain Spaulding in Rob Zombie's Houths of a Thousand Corpses and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects. But he also made some appearances in the Section 3 video nasty Aftermath, uh, Roger Corman's Bizarre Galaxy of Terror, and also the modern cannibalistic western Bone Tomahawk. Linda Haynes, of Video Nasty Human Experiments fame, she plays the bitchy Meg, while Fred of the 13th Part 5's Carol Locatell, who played the foul-mouthed Ethel, plays the prostitute Priscilla. Now, director Jack Hill is mainly known for his exploitation work, but he also did other horror movies like Bloodbath, uh, Spider Baby, uh, House of Evil, and he even helped direct the 1959 B-movie, the pun intended, The Wasp Woman. He also wrote the majority of his films, as well as some for other productions like Isle of the Snake People or Death Ship. And as mentioned previously, his non-sequel to Coffee, Foxy Brown, was on the Section 3 Nasties list, and it was originally a full-fledged sequel under the title Burn Coffee Burn. But this was axed when the producers thought that sequels were not going to do well. It was rushed through production anyway due to the success of Coffee, and has many similarities as a result of the late change. Producer Salvatore Bilateri, he'd worked on Mario Barber's Black Sabbath and also Planet of the Vampires, whilst working as a production manager on various cult classics like Frogs, Sugar Hill, Empire of the Ants, and the Amityville Horror. Samuel Z. Arkoff, another producer on the film, also worked on Amityville Horror and Planet of the Vampires, as well as some other exploitation movies like Sugar Hill, uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and also The Island of Dr. Moreau. In the early 2000s, he's been the executive producer on some TV horror movies, like Earth vs. the Spider or Teenage Caveman, but he also had a hand in the slasher film Final Terror and the 1999 remake The Haunting. Other producer, Buzz Feitchens, he moved on from Coffee and Foxy Brown onto the three Rambo films, A Total Recall, and also Die Hard with a Vengeance. There was composer as well, Roy Ayres, and he gave those memorable funky jives in coffee and then it ended up going on to score Tarantino's Jackie Brown, as well as contributing some songs to 8 Mile, starring Eminem, and he also, interestingly, um, contributed some music to the Grand Theft Auto games from Rockstar. More recently, he's contributed some of this talent to the music of the Marvel movie, Ant-Man. Cinematographer Paul Lohman, he went on to work on one of the worst films ever made, reportedly, 1981's Mommy Dearest, but he also went on to Michael Crichton's sci-fi movie, Looker, before contributing to quite a large repertoire of TV movies. Editor Chuck McClellan similarly had a large TV career, working on shows like The Love Boat, Kojak, Hunter and Hotel. 
but the special effects were done. Special effects were done by Jack DeBron, who proceeded to other black exploitation pictures like 1973's Scream Blackula Scream, and also 1975's Boss Nigger. Clive Wenger did some uncredited work on the special effects too, and he would graduate onto a truly mixed bag of films, such as the horror Burnt Offerings, 1977's Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, the TV movie Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, the comedy Police Academy 3, the David Fincher thriller The Game, the action film Out of Sight with George Clooney, kids' film The Parent Trap, and even 1999's Fight Club. It was in 1973 that Coffee was actually rejected by the BBFC for cinema exhibition, but only six months later, in April of 1974, the BBFC finally passed the film with just a few seconds cut from the scene of Sid Haig's character Omar being stabbed in the neck. It was passed fully uncut in November of 1998, and it has been ever since, especially with a pristine Blu-ray remaster from Arrow Video. And that was Coffee. So we're going to go straight on to our next movie, which is TNT Jackson. A drug deal in an eastern theatre goes awry when the dealer Stag is beaten up and flung on stage. Stag's sister Diana arrives in Hong Kong to look for her brother, beating off some thugs who attack her. She hitches a ride from a lady called Elaine to a place that she's written down, Joe's Haven. She meets with the proprietor, called Joe, and explains that she's looking for her brother when a fight breaks out in the bar, forcing the pair to fight them off. Charlie, the guy who beat up Stag, meets her and commends her talent, but it seems that Charlie works for Sid, who's a local drug lord who has the entire neighbourhood hooked, with his girlfriend, who turns out to be Elaine. Joe investigates Stag's last whereabouts, the theatre, and the owner explains that Stag was murdered and thrown on stage. Diana, referring to herself as TNT, meets with Charlie and the rest of the gang, including Elaine, Ming, and Sid, in order to learn more of them. But after some insults from Elaine, she walks off. After a shipment is hijacked, Sid employs Charlie to watch over the next one with the agreement of Ming. It's soon revealed, however, that Elaine is the one who's betraying her man. Hearing that Charlie's putting together his own men to defend the shipment, TNT volunteers her services. 
Now, while watching over the deal, TNT and Joe notice Elaine also spying, and they pursue her, culminating in a fight between her and TNT. Once kidnapped, Elaine reveals that she's actually a cop, and she's not truly working for them. Ming gets suspicious of Diana, however, and tries to torture her, but she manages to break three and beats up, beats up the thugs, amusingly topless. Now, with Ming on the warpath, Charlie meets TNT and has sex with her, wish, wishing her to join him as he has ambitions to take over the operation. Diana, however, soon learns that Charlie is in fact the one who killed her brother, due to her brother's lighter being in Charlie's possession. Elaine plans to arrest the drugling at their latest meeting, and is concerned that TNT will interfere, setting the police on her, who capture her and jail her. Unfortunately, Elaine is found out and held in Sid's room. Joe arranges a distraction to flood the police station with party-goers, allowing him to free TNT for her cell, while Diane fights her way out of her prison. At the meeting with the suppliers, Charlie cuts Sid and Ming out of the deal and takes over proceedings, while Diane confronts Sid, both of them tumbling out of a window to their deaths. TNT finally catches up to Charlie and confronts him about his murder of Stag, and the pair fight brutally. Charlie is eventually killed by TNT, who punches him clean through the stomach, finally granting her the revenge that she's craved. It's going to take more than magic. Oh, no, you're not thinking of... Getting rid of her? Do we have a choice? Look, kidnapping is one thing, but murder... It wouldn't be murder, more like self-defense. It's our next if she gives us away. Baby, I've done a lot of foolish things, but this is too much. Listen, I gotta talk to back on with the muzzle. No, listen! Save your breath. You're gonna need it. I gotta tell you something that's important. Okay. But it better be damn good. It's a lie. Joe, do you mind? Well, let's hear it. First of all, I'm not what you think I am. I know. Your Girl Scout work on your badge for the equality of niggers. I'm a government agent. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm Snow White, suffering from a sunburn. You're Diana Jackson, age 24, born in Harlem, alias TNT Jackson. When you were 13 years old, you were put in a New York State prison for knifing a sailor. Shit! You are a lousy, stinking pig. You even load a night thought. I don't care what you think of me. What is important is that I need your help. Me, TNT, working for the pigs? No chance. What if I were able to help you find out what happened to Stack? Stack? What do you know about him? Trouble outside. Charlie and me got the place around it. What about her? If you say anything that gives me away, so help me guard all your pig. Love enough all of time to hear. You got no proof. Right now, I got no choice either. Quite different in tone to Jack Hill's work with Pam Greer, TNT Jackson is more of a silly and cheap schlocky type affair, with liberal sprinklings of cheese and one-liners that are guaranteed to make you facepalm. The film's an American-Filipino co-production from the directorial helm of Sirio H. Santiago, who'd later go on to direct Naked Fist, which is often known as Firecracker, which not only made it onto the Section 3 Video Nasties list, but was also virtually a remake of TNT Jackson, only with a white actress. 
The film was born in the crucible of the long-lasting cooperation between Santiago and cult icon Roger Corman. Now, Corman had founded New World Pictures in 1970, intent on producing small independent movies from various locations in the world. His winning formula seemed to be that when he released a popular film, for example, Angels Die Hard or The Big Dollhouse, he set out to repeat the success as many times as he could. So Angels Die Hard led to Angels Hard As They Come and Bury Me an Angel, while The Big Dollhouse led to The Big Birdcage and Black Mama White Mama. Now, part of this cycle came about from the intervention of Sirio H. Santiago, who became friends with Corman and decided to knock out a few examples of what was popular at the time. TNT Jackson is the direct result of this collaboration, featuring both blaxploitation elements and martial arts snippings. TNT Jackson was based on a script by Dick Miller, who's a cult actor who's appeared in Gremlins, Piranha, The Howling, The Burbs, and also Small Soldiers. On Corman's instructions, it was slightly rewritten to include a much more black cast and a tone. Despite the film being set in Hong Kong, the majority of filming took place in the Philippines to cut down costs. While the film is certainly not boring, the film is rather lacklustre when it comes to any kind of subtext. While Jack Hill's black exploitation films are both fun and they have something to say, the idea that TNT Jackson has anything serious to say is rather comical. We do have all the elements, though, of a cheesy good time, from mismatched battle cries, sped-up kung fu sequences, trash-talking between Diana and Elaine, and some rather cartoonish gore sequences, including an arm being snapped in two with a surprising gush of plasma, while the ending features a blink-and-you'll-miss-it fist right through someone's stomach. TNT Jackson is certainly not the film that it's meant to be... TNT Jackson is certainly not the film that is meant to be heavy entertainment, but it is a fun little popcorn flick that would go down well with some drinks and some friends. So main girl Diana TNT Jackson, she's played by shapely actress Jeannie Bell, who was pretty exclusive to black exploitation films unlike Greer, in examples like Cleopatra Jones, Black Gun, Three the Hard Way and The Mothers, which, which was also directed by Santiago. She was born in Missouri, USA, and Bell was also be- born in Missouri, USA. Bell was also Playboy Playmate of the Month in 1969, but she retired from acting in the late 70s and has remained relatively quiet after getting married in 1986. But another recognizable face is that of Stan Shaw, who played Charlie. Now Shaw had a minor appearance in 1976's Rocky before having some roles in 80s movies like The Monster Squad and also Fried Green Tomatoes. In recent times, he starred in 1995's box office bomb Cutthroat Island alongside Gina Davis. He reunited with Sylvester Stallone in the disaster movie Daylight and also he starred in the much-anticipated sequel Jeepers Creepers 3 in 2017. Chiquito, who played Diana's companion Dynamite Joe Wong, was a veteran Filipino actor who'd been in countless films from the Philippines, while Pat Anderson, who played Elaine, had only a few other credits to her name in a couple of sexploitation-type pictures, like Cover Girl Models and also Angel of Heat. Ken Metcalf, who played the drug lord Sid, he also worked as a writer on the film for Roger Corman. He'd also write the remake of this, the Section 3 video nasty Naked Fist, and he'd also star in that too, as well as working as a casting agent on pictures like Apocalypse Now, Hamburger Hill, and 1996's sci-fi TV movie DNA. 
Sergio H. Santiago produced a few black exploitation pictures, like The Mother and She Devils in Chains, before mostly going on to mostly outrageous action pictures, with titles like Striker, Caged Fury, Demon of Paradise, and also Naked Vengeance. Santiago worked right up until 2005, when his health began to fail him, and he sadly passed away at home in the Philippines in 2008. Roger Corman's copybook is far too numerous to list here. He produced over 400 titles from 1954 to the present day. But his directorial credits have a few cult gems, like The Wasp Woman, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, The Mask of the Red Death, and also 1967's The Trip with Henry Fonda. He's also made some cameo appearances, though, in a couple of popular films, like The Howling, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, Screen 3, and even the modern sci-fi cheese fest, Sharktopus. Cinematographer Philippe Sagdalan has previously worked on some previous... Cinematographer Philippe Sagtalan had previously worked on some women in prison pictures like Women in Cages and also Santiago's previous effort with Pam Grier, The Big Bird Cage. Editor Gervasio Santos worked on Santiago's remake, Naked Fist, and also the black exploitation film The Mothers, while other editor, Barbara Pocras, she found some work on editing with Return of the Living Dead, as well as some episodes of the 70s show Wonder Woman. She also had a dabble in music too, though, contributing her talents to 1986's Murphy's Law, and also the bizarre comedy horror film Dead Heat in 1988. Now, after its small theatrical lease in America, the film was considered too niche for a release in the UK, but it did receive a release on VHS around the latter end of the Nasty Scare, but it wasn't available for very long, since the Video Recordings Act outlawed any uncertified videotapes at the end of 1984. The film disappeared completely, pretty much, only available in 1996 when a censored release was put out by Superfly Video. The print was missing some 30 seconds, removed from the bloody arm break, the stomach punch in the climax, and the scenes of Diana having her dress ripped open to expose her breasts. Now, the BBFC had a real problem with any sort of sexual violence, especially those involving weapons near breasts, and the scene was cut probably due to the character of Ming about to stub his cigar out onto Diana's chest. Of course, the film was passed uncut in 2004, and it also has a DVD release in the US as well, on a triple pack entitled Lethal Ladies Collection, which is bundled with Naked Fist and Too Hot to Handle. And that was TNT Jackson, and it's the last of our films for this week, guys. So sorry about the slight delay on this one, but I will be back next week just after Christmas with our new episode. Now obviously, with it being the season and all, our next episode is going to be fairly appropriate. 
we're tackling seasonal slashes next week with 1980's To All A Good Night, directed by David Hess, and also New Year's Evil, also from 1980. So if you've got anything to say about the films we've covered, or anything about the ones we're going to cover, or just anything about the show in general, you can tweet, you can tweet me at nastypastypod, or start a conversation on our Facebook group, or you can even email us over some written or audio feedback to our email address, and that's nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Now until next week, guys, have a good one, and keep eating those calendar chocolates. Christmas is almost upon us. So to all, a goodbye. <laughs>